Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Well, that was a very professional introduction. <laughs> well done. Father Mike. Father I'm John. Trying, I don't know. I, unless we change the title of the, the show, I just don't know how I'm going to get any variety there. We need to do like a creative planning session where you get like another five years of, you can just have a list of Oh yeah, crazy. Just, just read from my list. Crazy things you can say to start us off each time. So, so yeah, well. round, round two on the double double. Th- uh, so yeah, as you know from listening to this, we are here in Rome and we do these back to back once a month, and then our boys back in Denver do the same thing, and then they come out each week. But uh, the funny thing is, you know, you think they come out each week, but they don't. They go, you know, the first one and the second one, and the first one always is usually there's a little more banter we got a little more to talk about it's early in the oh, night yeah, you use it all up and we're, we're a little more you know there's a little more claritas you could say and then <laughs> the second one it's just kind of like we're getting tired and we're into the double double but you know what and uh you know you, you, uh carrie wakulich yeah <laughs> good priest from wacky o- oklahoma city uh-huh oh ooh, ooh, watch it tulsa Oh yeah! Oh, no, I'm no sorry. red, no red dirt. And anyway, back, back in seminary, he, uh, when he got tired, he used to do push-ups. Like in yep. the middle of class, he'd yep. get up and he'd go and do push-ups. He had been in the military, I think. I've yet to see you do push-ups during one of my. Well, that's what I was about to do. But because that I'm might be the uh, that oh, he's doing it. Here we go. Let's well, see. I'll keep him entertained. Let's see. Let's see how many you can do here. One. Two. Oh man, look at this! No, he's got this new. He's like uh, Mr. Fitness now. He did this marathon. So, all right, that's about eight. Nice work. All right, you're ready. The blood's going. Yeah, you are uh, Mr. Fitness now. This guy is a. He's a freak. I. Uh, I took him on a forty mile. Catholics. I took him on a forty forty mile bike ride. He hasn't ridden in six months. No problem. All the way, Castel oh, Gandolfo, um, going you, up. You were ahead of me. You didn't see the problem, but there was problem. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sweating. My face looks contorted. Terif- I mean, terrible. I don't, I, it, it was hard. This, time, this, this, this one was rough. This one was rough. It was the I first, kept blaming fr- my bike, you know? I was we saying, oh, that. I don't yeah, have the, the high gears. Yeah, yeah. Something changed. I just had my bike tuned. No, it's because I don't have any muscle. <laughs> because I'm out of shape. I don't know if that's true. He, he, Father Mike is riding Rocinante, who's uh, as old as we are. On, Beautiful bike. And he's got, like, you know, when you were a five-year-old and you got your first bike or whatever, eight. I don't know how old are kids when they start riding bikes, something like that. Yeah, when do, when do you? I don't Maybe know. Maybe eight. Eight, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the pedals, you just have these flat pedals, you know. And I got my fancy bike here. And Yeah, uh, these sophisticated cyclists have shoes that uh, in. clip into the yeah. bike and... I don't know. Did I ever tell you about my first bike? No. My Aunt Judy, my wonderful, sweet godmother, my mom's sister, she bought me my first bike, and it was, uh, but it was way too big for me. Like, I couldn't. I oh, couldn't. yeah, a mountain bike. So they, I had to have two people put me on it and then send me off, right? Did you have training wheels? No, no training wheels. At so all? I would, well, this is like, we used to have those Sink big, or swim, we had yeah. those big wheels. Remember those back in the 80s? Did you have a, I thought that was like a little motorized. No, thing no, there. not well. Is that what big wheels were? Power. Those are power wheels. Oh, power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the big wheels were just the the big wheel in the front, and then you just roll and. A tricycle. No, these weren't like bikes. But anyways, that's what you start on, and then I I jumped into unicycle. This is kind of like my life. This kind of sums up my life. And then I jumped into this like adult bike at age six or whatever. So they'd put me up on this thing, and then I'd ride, but I couldn't get off of it. Oh yeah. So I would just jump I off. Do. I remember that. <laughs> I would just, too. So my dad would be out like mowing the lawn and I'd be coming down the street and I would just jump off and the bike would just go like crash into the minivan and Or you just kinda like rack yourself and <laughs> yeah. slam your feet down into yeah. the pavement. This is crazy. This is you know, this is back in the day. So things were just kinda nuts in the nineteen eighties, I think. So speaking of which, yeah, Stranger Things, we're ready for the next year to come out. Um, it's funny talking about that show, though. We're not like show guys. Um, we don't have our shows, but Father Brian Larkin, as we probably talked about this in the fall. Uh, we definitely talked about this in the fall, but he turned us on to this. We watched all eight episodes over a 72-hour period, and then 
that was about it. It was a very compelling show. But uh, well it's, it's mixed. You talk to people. I talk to these college kids, you know, these Bernardi kids that I talk about a lot, that my college chaplaincy group here, who are highly in, uh, disinterested in this podcast. <laughs> they just absolutely, yeah, it just doesn't even, it's like, what are you talking about? Podcast. I, might I don't well, know. Maybe they're too young. I don't Yeah. I might as well be like, I write telegrams, and I send <laughs> telegrams to people. Like, that's that's the kind of thing. But I talk to them about Stranger Things. And I'm like, this show is awesome. You guys got to win. They're just like, what? Oh, uh, yeah. Because it's a nostalgic thing. It's, it's a nostalgic thing. It's about the thing. 80s. It's a nostalgic thing. And, and these kids were born in like they don't know the 2013 they don't know or whatever. The yeah, I know. I know. That's a shame. It's I'm a new very excited about Stranger Things. I want to see more because there's this Barbara. You know Barbara? Bar- <laughs> no. Barbara's gone, man. Barbara? She's no. Gone. <laughs> she's coming back. She's like my favorite, and she's going to make a comeback in the next. You're crazy. Barbara's dead. She had worms get growing it. out of her face. Yeah, I, I'm afraid Barbara's not coming back. But we'll see. I feel bad for these people who write these shows because you do this, you, you do this amazing kickoff season, and then oh yeah, everybody's freaking out and expectations. Expectations are, are high. Bad. Supposedly, this is the golden era of TV shows right now. That's what somebody told me at lunch a few days ago. So okay, I don't know what that means. It's just I all these great shows. Sit and in the library and read boring. I know. Books well, Cassie and Jake and books. Jared, when we were here, she was telling me all about these shows, and, and she sent a list. You got to watch this. You got to watch this. And I said, okay, we don't own a TV, we don't have Amazon Prime, we don't have Netflix or whatever else people watch. Like we don't have anything. She's like, you're worthless. And I was like, I know. That's I see little YouTube clips of things. Yeah, but I don't know. Not much. That's about anyway. It. We'll get our. Stranger Things Part Two. We'll get there in, in probably about four months. But you know what? We're ready for the summer. We were just we were just talking upstairs, oh, yeah. and we were sitting out on Saturday night while I was stressing cooking this meal. But the sun was out. It was snowing in Colorado, but it was a sunny seventy degree day here in Rome. Oh man! We're listening to Dispatch. Speaking of old guys, they got a new song. Have you heard the new song? I think you played it. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. So. But That's it's a nostalgic thing. It's nostalgic. You think these people know Dispatch? I know, I know. I remember when I got ordained and Phil Bartlane bought us tickets for their reunion concert. And they're playing at Red Rocks again this summer in Colorado, our wonderful amphitheater. But I was like, wow, bands I listened to in high school are doing a reunion concert. That is uh, that's a bad sign. They've retired a long time ago. And I, I saw but the summer on, is near. We went on retreat. Up at this place near Castel Gandolfo. It's like a volcanic crater. Beautiful, beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And they have these woods next door. I've been living in the city. You know, if I go out, then there's buildings everywhere. But there were trees. Trees. And the sun was shining. Oh, man, I know. And there were flowers blooming. And one of my favorite scriptures, this command of Jesus, look at the birds. Look at and the then birds. the other one is, uh, look at the flowers of the field. Look at the lilies of the field. And I just walked around there. I was praying. I was communing with nature. It was wonderful. Yeah. And I have something to look forward to uh, for for summer. And I Getting ran it back out on, on on the mountain, being in nature, looking at the birds. It's amazing. We miss we miss the green, miss the birds. I was walking around out there. I run into this guy on my right here, and he says, "Hey, we should have a fire tonight in this cave and drink bourbon." And I was like, "That sounds amazing." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're on a silent retreat. And like howl, we don't have any howl bourbon. at the moon. Howl at the moon. I know. <laughs> well, you got that Franciscan thing in you because you I got St. Francis this year. Yeah, it's true. I know. I know. Okay. Well, you're not doing push-ups yet, so that's good. No, I did my push-ups. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling awake. Michael, tonight is, uh, this could be sweet and this could be lame. So I uh, I don't know what to tell you. I'm looking to Everybody's to talking one. about this last Goebel podcast where he was oh, yeah. got all emotional. People are raving. See, People I... Are, I meant to listen to it, and I've been busy, busy, busy. I know, so Goebbels... But it's, it's on the queue. He's bringing the... He's bringing the... Uh, yeah, he's raising the quality here. Bring joy it. of Easter. Or joy of Easter, heaven. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So listen to those guys. They got good stuff back home. I don't know about this one tonight, but we're going to just... We're going to roll with it. What do you got? You keep giving a disclaimer. What do you got? Uh, so what I want to talk about tonight is Kristen Lovren's daughter. Ooh, I like that. I know you'd like that. I'll explain what that is in a second if you don't know that name. And uh, but I want to I want to infuse it, you know, infuse it with Mock Shaler phenomenology on resentment. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I do know Kristen Lovren's daughter. Do you know Mock Shaler? I know the name, but I don't know his stuff very well. I don't either. But that's that's going to be part of the fun tonight. But the, all that other 
philosophical thing. Phenomenological realism. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That reminds me of a funny story. Father Peter Musset was at a bar. This is early on. Uh, and he was talking to some pretty girl. <laughs> and she was a philosophy major. And uh, he was trying to impress her. And he said, she said, well, what are you into? What's your villain? He said, I'm a <laughs> he said, I'm a, a phenomenological realist. And she <laughs> oh, goes, yes. And she goes, whoa, what does that mean? And he goes, I have no idea. And he <laughs> walked away. <laughs> That's it. So yeah, called his bluff. I guess we're all phenomenological realists, but uh, we don't actually know what these words mean. I was at dinner tonight, sitting with our Father Brian Graby, who we talk about often. Yeah, our the buddy podcast, from New our, York, who listens. He listens to the podcast, and uh, congrats to Father Brian. Is uh, a classmate of mine, but he's he just bl- blasted ahead of me. He's got his proposal for his dissertation done. I haven't even finished my oh, license bravo. thesis. The guy's just killing it. So congrats, Brian. You inspired me slash led me into drinking more tonight, and. Um, but we're sitting there having uh, dinner, and Father Jacob Strand is across from us from Milwaukee, another fine guy. Um, and he uh, and Brian says, "What are you doing the podcast on tonight?" And I said, "Kristen Lovren's daughter." And he just starts to glow. Oh yes, he says that another the, fan. He says that is the greatest novel ever written. Yes. And I was like, "That is what I'm talking about." And and then we turn to Jacob, and we're like, "Have you read it?" And he's just like, "Yeah, I started it and dropped it." And we're like, "You have to read it." And it just became this like crazy. Fan buzz. Oh, yeah. And I think we freaked out Strand enough to say, we'll see if he actually reads it, but we, we gave oh, him Oh, it's in. We gave it's him the totally business. It's totally trending right now. It's trending. You know what else is trending? And I don't get this one bit. Steinbeck's East of Eden. Everybody's mm. reading East of Eden right now. Oh, yeah. I'm reading East of Eden. So, but you're kind of a nonconformist. So, how did I'm you end listening up? On, how did you end I, up? I'm listening to the book on tape. But how did you end up in this fad? I it was recommended. See, everything's coming together. I mean, the it's stars just, are aligning. The stars are aligning. It's providence, because I heard about it from uh, Father Matt Book, who uh, knew that I liked Steinbeck, and then was just recommending it. I think at random. Yeah. Because he had listened to it a while back. I don't know. So and then I find out everybody else is reading. Everybody it. else is reading it. Father Joseph Lejoie. Yep. Uh, Molly. Yep. Um, that might be it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So but, every, but everybody's reading it. It turns out I know some people who Well, are maybe some other people, but it feels like every, everybody's good, but reading. His characters are just like depressing. They're right. very bad people at the beginning. Right. And, um, I, I mean, the story is about the fall. So you would expect to find bad people, but. Yeah. He's very good at depicting how bad people can get. Right, which is good, which is good to read literature. I was really struck by this. You know, I've on, I'm, I'm in this John Henry Newman class. And uh, I actually have a final tomorrow. Yikes. Is that is today Tuesday? <laughs> Good luck. Ooh, 11 a.m. tomorrow. Oh, wow. You're okay. ready. No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not ready like at you're all. you're not ready. <laughs> oh, wow. That's tomorrow. Okay. So, um, wow. You, you want to keep going? <laughs> Let me just uh, get, get through this panic attack real quick. And then, okay. Um, yeah, so we're not going to talk Breathe. much about John Breathe Henry Newman. A, I need to do why, some pushups. Why did they breathe into that, into into that the paper stro- bag? <laughs> Did he do this? Um, that's what Goebel does when he wants to get the fire going. He does this triangle on his mouth. He swears it actually works, but he looks oh, ridiculous. It's a he gimmick. <laughs> like, why? What? Why does it? But so, they anyways, can, they can't see you. John Henry Newman <laughs> talks about the importance. He, he wrote this book called The Idea of the University, and he's talking about uh, education. And he says it's important for us as Catholics to read not just like pious literature, you know. He, yeah, but books he, about saints. But he says prayers. literature is itself. It's the he calls it the autobiography of humanity. So mm. it's the story of fallen man, and the struggle uh, to reach his end. Mm-hmm. And then when you have Christians reflecting on that, you know, one of the beautiful things is when you start to see grace at work. But you got to see the the post lapsarian. That's our fancy word for yeah, fallen. The life after the fall. And so Steinbeck is reflecting on that. And it's really important to kind of, I think, grapple with it, even if it gets yeah. difficult and dark. And, and even when people are not like explicitly religious or something, uh, fiction, by its nature, is geared toward observation of reality in, right. in, in humanity. And that's really what we're reflecting on with theology as well. Right. It's like what's real, what's real that we can't see, and what's real that we can see. Yeah. And one of the problems with Catholic education is that we we do like religion in this like little 
separate box, you know. So you go to your CCD class, and they cram you full of catechism knowledge, where you go and you study the Bible, or you study theology, and in maybe a Catholic high school or, or college, and it's just separated from everything. Yeah. And so the the interdisciplinary project of like a Catholic studies program, which I'm a big fan of, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which Newman did. Balthazar was also big on this about bringing literature, bringing history, bringing culture, and philosophy, and theology, all these things back together. That's part of the the real integration of I think a flourishing and a well cultivated Catholic mind. So literature very is very important. Yeah. I was shocked by Kristen Lovren's daughter, which is a novel that was written by Sigrid Unstedt, um, Norwegian, born in Denmark, but Norwegian parents. Um, she won the Nobel Prize in in the twenties and wrote this her magnum opus uh, between nineteen twenty and nineteen twenty two. It's a trilogy of about twelve hundred pages, so it's big. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a it's a commitment. It can be very intimidating, but it's absolutely worth it. And yeah. the three parts are... And it keeps you moving. It ke- oh, it's so good. So the three parts are Kranzen. How's your Norwegian? They're not very good. The wreath. That's part one. Oh, yeah. Husfrun. The <laughs> wife. <laughs> 1921. <laughs> no idea what you're saying. And then Korset. It's kind of like German. And you start. You bought a Norwegian Bible. So Those I words you'd are be, not words know, that I know. The cross. Korset. So there you go. There There's you your go. Norwegian lesson for the night. So... Evan Christensen's hearing this, and he's like, oh, I know. He's now, right, so. Singrid Unsed uh, was a Catholic convert, no? Right. Did she convert before, after? She converted in 1924, so she would have written these just a few years before. Just before. But it's it, the subject matter is Catholic yeah. um, Norway. Catholic Norway. So Sigrid Unsted is born in 1882 and then dies in uh, 1949, and she ends up in the United States for her final years because of the wars. And um, but she has this profoundly Catholic vision for how humanity uh, plays out in the drama of sin and grace. It's absolutely magnificent. Yeah. And so what I'd like to do is reflect on one little piece of that, and then tie it into our phenomenological realism of uh, Mark Shaler. And um, but the main thing, what I, I don't want to give the plot away. This is where it's going to get a little tricky. Okay. Because um, you when can I give the general, can't you? Right. We'll give some gen- generalities. But when I was told by Matt Book five years ago, so he must be our literature guy. He is our literature guy. He's our literature he, guy. He's a literature guy. He's a he's a man of letters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Matt Book. Yeah. So Father Matt Book, who definitely does he not is. listen, he's, not he, listen I guess to podcasts, he reads but the classics. But he's he's got you reading East of Eden and half the universe right now, and he got me to read Kristen Lovren's daughter. But when he recommended it five years ago, he was like. John, I'm reading this novel, and it's amazing. And I was like, well, what's it about? He's like, 14th century story of this young woman's life. And I was like, lame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why would I read? And I was like, how long is it? He's like, 1,200 pages. I was like, why would I ever <laughs> yeah. read for months this story of this girl's life in the 14th century? Well, man, was I wrong. Yeah. And it took me five years to finally muster the courage to read it. Now, you read it several years ago, and you were talking about it. Yeah, it was very the, profound for me. Because you got the Scandahoovian thing, and you're into that, you know. Yeah, I think that's what kind of drew me to that that read was just it. It seemed connected to my roots, and it had been recommended, yeah, by Father Grosky and by Father Book. Right. There's a uh, a number of different themes that come out in the story, and uh, none of which, well, one of which we'll try and touch on tonight. But um, it's the story of this woman's life, and it traces it from age six to the end of her life. And um, it's a story of her, um, her young love and her marriage and her maternity and then the cross at the end, the suffering that she endures uh, with the Black Plague. So this is 14th century Norway. It's a profoundly Christian culture, but it's also fairly new. It's only like several centuries, so there's kind of still the struggle with some pagan things. And, and you see the kind of, but you see how this um, kind of agrarian um, medieval life was really lived and mm-hmm. instead she did a ton of research to kind of understand exactly what is it like and she's just a masterful writer i think one reason i was so struck by this is because i'm writing this uh thesis that have been for the last few months and i was like comparing my writing with her and i was so inspired by just the clarity yeah and the beauty of um but she can just paint these amazing images so the story starts and this little girl gets invited to go up with her dad and all the men to go up into the up into the mountains above their their home. Jorgen Gard, 
Remember that? Yeah. yeah. So they the go up above God. there. This, she's kind of an aristocratic family. And um, but I, you can just you can feel it, you know, as the story kind of begins. And uh, and then she moves on. She becomes a young woman. She falls in love. There's this very dramatic um, story and the, the interplay between kind of her young love and Eldrind, who's her suitor, and then her father, who's this amazing, amazing character, one of the finest, I think, portrayals of fatherhood. Yeah, I and think the, the the kind of value, the greatest value of the, of the story is, uh, one, the characters um, are so vivid. Like, you really get a sense that you know these people. Oh, yeah. That they're not um, just something you're watching, but there's they're people that you're connecting with. And then um, a lot of the drama plays out in family. It's very real that way, that it's not like uh, superhero stories that are spanning the globe and right. time or whatever. Right. It's like actual life is happening. Yeah. And um, you're watching people grow and interact with each other. And um, that's where all the like the profound struggles are and the profound graces are in kind of relation within the families. Absolutely. And that is true. These characters become so real that, and you stay with them for so many weeks that um, we were on retreat and I was finishing the novel and I was reading it too much. Confession. I shouldn't have been reading it. And I actually talked to my director and he's like, you probably should kind of chill out because I was just like... You were nearing the end. It was so close. Pages. So close to the end. I had about 100 pages left. Anyways, I, w- I was preparing for Mass one day and I was making my intention. We set an intention for who we're going to offer the Mass for. And I set it for one of the characters <laughs> of the book thinking this was a real person. Because I was so moved by their situation in the moment. <laughs> you were going to offer masks. And then I was like, pause. That's not a real human being. You cannot, you should not, that, that just, you need to get back to reality. So it, it really does grab you. It's very yeah. captivating. So, uh, but I think that I had this crazy idea at one point where I was like, this is what marriage prep should be. It should just be read Kristen Lovren's daughter and we're going to talk about it as you go through it yeah. for six months. That'd be interesting, marriage prep. <laughs> <laughs> it would be. I got my, my sister's about to. Start marriage prep. Yeah. Maybe I'll suggest it. I think it's. I want to. I want to recommend it to everybody. I just. I sent. Uh, I'm starting to send volume one to people just to not freak them out by the monster uh, size Trilogy, of the whole yeah. the whole bit. But uh, sent it to Melissa McCoy and said you got to read this. And um, but I think the Laverin's the father. Her father. It's one of the. If if you're a guy and you're a father of family, you got to read this book. Not just because it, you Kristen's life and you see kind of the. You see the feminine, and you see it at work, but also because you see this this absolutely beautiful relationship with her father and the, the nobility mm-hmm. of this very faithful Christian man in the in the Middle Ages. And uh, I just I was deeply moved by Laverne's Bjorgolfsson, I think is how you pronounce the. That's it was great and phenomenal. There you go. That was a right on pronunciation. So, anyways, she moves on through her life. She falls in love with Elrond, and um, and not to be confused with Elrond, right from Lord of the Rings. I, don't I bet care. you were. Con- <laughs> <laughs> I like Kristen Lawrence though. So I anyways, like Lord yeah, of so the Rings. Too. So, yeah, the, yeah. but the story continues. But anyways, what I want to focus in on tonight is um, is not so much Lawrence and the fatherhood or her experience of motherhood. There's a great article in First Things that came out uh, about five years ago called "Under Her Heart: Motherhood and Kristen Lawrence's Daughter." Beautiful. I'd highly recommend it. I read mm. it recently, reflecting on Kristen's motherhood because she has seven sons. Um, what I want to talk about is Kristen's struggle with resentment. Oh. Resentment, yeah. So she falls deeply, completely, passionately in love in her youth and builds her life on this man. Um, and then she spends the rest of her life struggling with that love. Yeah. And in a very particular way, struggling with resentment. And it really spoke to me personally, just I was kind of... I get very autobiographical, as you know, when I read novels. So I become certain yeah, characters yeah, yeah. and he, he other people. My, enemy, my enemies become this story. person and this kind of thing. And so it's it's sick. It's very solipsistic. And no, that's literature. That's what you're supposed to do. But it, 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 what it does is it illuminates. It's like I live in a world of ideas and systems, you know, and um, I think we do as academics. And I feel like literature just puts it puts flesh on bones, yeah, on ideas. So. What it did for me was it was like resentment is a concept and is an idea, something I've thought about, prayed about in my own life with helping people. But when I when I got it in this character, the way that Unstead was able to describe it, it really really grabbed me really yeah. deeply. And I think with with someone outside of yourself, because even if we notice like something that we do that we don't like, 
or like something that we feel that we don't like, um, we, we're kind of trapped in our own experience. Like you don't know how to get free of that. Mm-hmm. But if you see somebody else, you, you start, you know, oh, if you just did this or uh, try this or like uh, you, you start to hope for them to move or like pay attention to their life and how they could actually like grow from that with hopes that it, it could happen to me too. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. You see them get stuck and fixated in things, especially with this resentment. And, uh, and then you realize like, you're just like, Oh, you, you're not seeing it or, you know, yeah. and then you, it becomes a mirror that you start to realize. Yeah. So sometimes I wonder if, if, if just good literature is just helpful for us to even grow in self knowledge in the spiritual life, because it becomes such a vivid way of, speaking into these things. So anyways, I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, digging out all these obscure quotes because they're all, you know, it's, it's literature, so it's not like specific ideas. They're buried in characters and you got to read the story. But I just want to pull one idea out and one moment, one quote that really struck me when I was reading it. I gave the book away to Monsignor John Walsh is reading it right now in England. All right. I gave it to our friend Claire, John and Claire. Oh my gosh, wonderful. Our friends up in Liverpool. But it was like gall- it was like getting rid of the ring at the end of uh, Lord of the Rings. It was just like I can't, I can't. Get this rid guy of this. gets very attached to his books. He I loves get it. very attached. But he's to learning my books. detachment. But I'm learning yeah. detachment thanks mm-hmm. to my friend who's attached to very little in this life on my right here. So we're getting there, piano piano, as we say here in Italy, slowly, slowly. But um, so I gave the book away, so I don't have it right here with me. But I do have this one quote. So. Kristen is talking about her, this is later on, this is page 915, for those of you who are reading it. So this is a long ways in, almost a thousand pages in. And But it really struck me um, because when you do this thing for the long haul, when you do relationships for the long haul, um, you realize that the little things add up. Mm. And they can they can they can kill love in the heart if, if they're not tended to. Just little, little stupid comments petty things that you might even think to yourself, ah, that shouldn't bother me, you know, but then you bury them and you kind of move on. And so yeah. I read this and it really spoke to me. So let me read this to you. This is Kristen reflecting on, on her marriage. She said, if he had be- betrayed me, if he had betrayed her once, this is um, the author reflecting as Kristen. If he had betrayed her once, uh, that would have been the end of it. But he hadn't betrayed her. He had merely failed her again and again and made her life full of anguish and uncertainty. No, he had never betrayed her, nor had he ever made her feel secure, and she could see no end to it all. Here she stood now, about to beg him to come back, to fill her goblet each day with uncertainty and unrest, with expectations, with longings, and with great fear. Mm. So what she's saying is, uh, what Unstead's trying to portray here is that... um, Kristen's struggle with resentment is not because he uh, he did something that just totally destroyed uh, the marriage. It was just these little things. And yeah. Elrin's kind of he's kind of a wild and man. It, w- it would be nice to be able to blame one spectacular moment, right. but it's not. And so there's an un- there's an uncertainty and an instability, even in intellectually or existentially, kind of clinging to something you can't control it because it's so like where is it? What is it? Yeah. And you can get to a point with people, with friends, with spouses, with children, where you're you're kind of you realize your heart is just cold or frustrated or embittered, even in little ways. Maybe you're not even manifesting this, you know. Maybe it's, this isn't necessarily even on the level of sin. This is just the movements of the heart. And you say, "How did I even get here?" But it's this. It's this thing. It's just the I've been failed again and again, and you've made my life one of anguish and uncertainty. Mm. And that's a uh, that's a hard place to get to. And then their presence feels like that, you know. Exactly. Even though, yeah, you you wonder like how how do we get to this place? But um, you can recognize that it's there. Yeah. You know, just that cold and that anxiety. Mm. And it's really hard because you feel it. You get there, and then you say. You feel trapped because you're like, I, I don't understand what this is. I don't know where this came from. I don't know how to come out of this. You just feel just like that's it, you know. I don't I don't know how to love my mom or my dad or my spouse or my brother or my friend or whatever it might be. And um, and you know, on a natural level, you, this you feel like you're at kind of a dead end. You feel like you get into a kind of a cul-de-sac with people, and you just kind of kind of can't move on. So, 
what can happen there is um, that that's when resentments can really harden. And I was struggling with some resentments with a friend, not Father Mike, a year about a year ago. And I texted our good friend, Father Father Greg Peterson, who does not listen to the podcast, but uh, if he did, he would say, "Talk to Joyce Meyer, the Protestant, um, oh, yeah. who is probably very probably has a lot of wisdom on this this particular topic." Even, and I texted Father Greg, and I said it was kind of a joke, and I said, "Dear Joyce, talking to Father Greg, I said." Uh, I'm consumed with resentments over one of my best friends. Do you have any advice for me? Sincerely, a devoted listener. It was kind of a joke. Yeah, yeah. But it was also kind of serious because I knew he would give me good advice. And what he said was, he said, uh, he said, dear listener, thank you for your uh, thank you for your text. No one is to blame for these resentments except you. Sincerely, Joyce Meyer. And I was like, <laughs> ah! <laughs> I was like, that is not what I wanted to hear. Yes. But that is the voice of Joyce. That's the voice I mean, of like Joyce. Like speaking through Father Greg. I know. I know. That's so funny. He responded in the voice of. Oh yeah, he yeah he he totally. Played I mean, it's it. it's the it's the joke, but it's it's also like, kind of how he operates. Totally. He loves Joyce. He loves Joyce, and it was uh it was That's so funny. That's good advice, though. It was very freeing for me because it forced me to own it, mm-hmm. because, what what we can do is you get into a place of resentment, and then what you do is you feel trapped, like you can't change, so then you just are like, well. I have to change the circumstances, I have to, or I have to change these people, you know. And then you realize very quickly you can't change them. So then what you do is you're like, I need to find as many friends as I can who I can g- get to justify what I'm feeling and what I think and my resentments so that I feel better about, you know. They become yeah, yeah. therapeutic for, my, for justifying my resentments because I can't change myself, I can't change them. And then you feel trapped. And that's ultimately very empty. Yeah. Know? And so uh, I'm kind of panicking it's inside, not <laughs> just like feeling like, well, what do you do? What do you do? Is there hope? There, there is hope um, because there's grace. And that's the uh, that's the thing. I remember Christian Brueger in a class. He said, gentlemen, we live in a grace in a graced universe. I remember him saying that one time and it was such a simple phrase, but it was just like grace is real. Mm. And humanity is uh, our love is broken. I love it. I gave a very strange homily last week to these college kids trying to articulate that. The resurrection is the is the victory of of God's love in the world, and that means that our love is is fundamentally broken. Mm. We just made the spiritual exercise of Saint Ignatius, and when he has us meditate on the incarnation, he says, "What does man do? He wounds, he kills, he goes down to hell. He goes down to hell, mm. <laughs> and that's kind of what we do. We're wounding each other, and uh, grace heals. Grace heals and it elevates, according to Saint Thomas Aquinas." And so we need grace. We need to beg for grace. And we need to God, uh, beg God to bring grace into our resentments um, and to heal that. One last um, kind of little memory on um, resentments. I don't know why these things stick in my memory. I can't remember what I had for lunch today, but I can remember certain phrases and certain things. I guess that's how humanity works. But I remember standing outside of St. Thomas Aquinas Parish about five years ago, and I was talking to some of my some parishioners that I really love, and we were just talking about this. And somebody said something very interesting. They said, um, they said that, um, yeah, unlivable expectations are, are resentments waiting to happen. And then the conversation moved on, and I was like, huh, mm-hmm. well, that's interesting. So there's a connection between expectations and resentment. And so when we find ourselves just kind of buried in resentment, like Kristen Lovren's daughter is with her husband, we have to kind of stay, okay, there's something about the expectations here that... We demand and expect this. It's not happening. We feel powerless, and then we, um, and then we we harden, and then we just say, "Well, that's it. They're never going to change, and they don't understand, and they don't care, and they never cared, and they've always been like this." And then you start to absolutize things. They're never going to change. They've they've actually always been like this. They've never loved me, and it leads to despair. Uh, And so that's that's the experience of resentment. But so there's hope and grace. There's hope and, and grace. I, I, another point of genius in this novel is that grace never plays out quite the way you expect it to or that you want it to, really. I mean, I think there's a there's something of a happy ending. I mean, it's not a blanket happy ending in the story. But um, grace happens, and um, it, it just... It's very natural. It's very organic. It's like God is another character in this, in this uh, novel, 
that's never spoken of. But it, it's not like Kristen goes and finds a self-help manual right. and then fixes the situation and then, you know, happily ever after or something like that. But it's through sufferings. It's through um, kind of breaking. It's kind of admitting one's own part and um, accepting life and all kinds of other factors that sort of lead to her peace and her... Uh yeah, and I think that's it. That's it, is that what I, one of the things I've discovered with my own struggle with this is like, um, as Americans, we want, we want Jesus to fix our life. We want, we want it to be therapeutic. We want the faith to just, we want to go to church and feel good about everything and everything to be fixed. And God doesn't just fix Kristen's life. He doesn't fix her marriage. And she deals with her whole life. She deals with the effects of her sins. Mm-hmm. And she struggles with it. But in the end, you see, it all, it all kind of comes together in a yeah, way. It but makes it's sense. In, but it's in, a, it's in a mysterious way. It's not in this kind of sugar-coated, perfect, therapeutic Everything's everything's great, you know, uh, kind of world. That that's not that's not how she. That's not real. That's yeah. not real, and I think that's part of the freedom. So, anyways, we'll we'll come back to that. We'll finish on, a, on with grace and with the fact that you don't have to okay. live in resentment. But we got to go deeper into resentment real quick. Oh man, we're already at twenty seven slash whatever minutes. So, Mock Shaler. Yeah, Mock Shaler. Mock Shaler wrote a book. Phenomenological realism. Mock Shaler wrote a book called. How do you pronounce that in the French? I don't even know what I'm looking at here. Top top word. Resentiment. Resentiment. Okay, resentiment. That's the book I'm holding right here. So yeah, resentment. Take a look at that. Resentment. Now he leaves it in that in the French because he's writing the book in German, um, in the 1920s, um, and he, there's no German word that really translates resentiment. Really? Okay. The closest thing is probably I have my list here of German words. Probably groll. Rancor, <laughs> okay, cool. or Schadenfreude. Do you yeah, know Schad? Do you know Schadenfreude? What does Schadenfreude mean? Schadenfreude is the joy. Freude is joy or delight, and, and Schade. Schade. Schade is like uh, kind of pain or suffering. Yeah, misfortune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the joy that you feel at somebody else's misfortune. Right. So that's kind of the closest German. We have Rache, Hass, Bosheit, Neid. These are all envy, malice, hatred, revenge, groll, zorn, wrath. They all sound way more intense in the German. But anyways, when he's writing this book, he keeps it in the French because he's trying to keep... The, it's a French word, resentiment, which literally means resentment, re-sentiment. Yeah, right? to feel again. To feel again. And that's one of the key phrases that he um, is trying to unpack. This. So anyways, Mach Shaler, very briefly, born about a decade before... Um, our friend Sigrid Unstedt, who wrote Kristen Lovren's Daughter, converted to Catholicism also, except he was a little younger, converted right around the year 1900. Mm. But the difference between Mach Scheler, the philosopher, and Sigrid Unstedt, the author, is that Mach Scheler ended up apostatizing at the end. Oh, he left? In the 20s, yep. Oh. Early 20s, he kind of says, I'm done with this. Um, now, he comes across some very interesting people, one of whom is Edith Stein, who was his right. student. Didn't, so, didn't John Paul do stuff on that? And John either? Paul wrote a dissertation called An Evaluation of the Possibility of Constructing a Christian Ethics on the Basis of the System of Mach Shaler. Ah. So John Paul did major work. All these guys were involved in a school of philosophy called Phenomenology, which was um, founded by Der Meister, Edmund Husserl. Uh, Terry Wright, if you're listening to this, thank you for teaching us yes. this many years ago. And Husserl's basic project, this is very, very basic here, and, and we got to move on is that phenomenon, phenomena, the experience of things, he's trying to recover that in a, in a real way after idealism, German idealism. So everything's just ideas, systems. You think of Kant and Hegel and these guys. So he's trying to say, how do we get back to reality in acknowledging my experience? So phenomenology is a method, a philosophical method, whereby you're trying to evaluate your experience, right? Mm-hmm. So this phenomenologist is writing this, and he's writing it based on, he's responding to a, um, Nietzsche's understanding of resentment. Because Nietzsche takes resentment and says, this is the foundation of morality. Right? He's a famous line in the Geology of Morals where he says, Christian love is the most delicate flower of resentment. Frederick Nietzsche. So resentment is what 
leads resentment for whatever reason, the Jewish thing, whatever, we, we don't really have time to go into this, but it leads to the formation of Christian love, powerlessness, right? Mm. So it, it's the whole reversion of power, because remember Nietzsche's thing is about the will to power. So this Christian thing about powerless love is rooted in resentment. Shaler's mm. actually trying to undermine that and say that does happen in the Christian life, but it's not the source of the Christian life. Resentment is the source of this modern love, which he calls, um, uh, it's somewhere in here, I don't have time to go into it, but the, the modern post-Christian understanding of love that we're living in is rooted in resentment towards the Christian understanding. So that's what Shaler's project is. Mm. We don't have much time to go into that. Well, so. I'm trying to understand this, this Nietzsche thing. I don't want to waste time, but it's something like um, he, I mean, very condescendingly, kind of understood the Judeo-Christian thing as like a self-pity. Mm-hmm. I am I am strong because I am weak. Right. Means that's it. I focus on my weaknesses constantly and then pretend that that's what is my glory. Mm-hmm. I'm great because I'm the underdog. I'm great because, you know, I, I, I don't need greatness. I can be small or something like that. Instead of human beings are made to be great and that's it. You should, you know not focus on the weaknesses or, or yeah so the the feel, feeling and staying in a place of weakness smallness rather than like insisting on greatness and breaking out of that or something like that yeah defining greatness for yourself yeah okay yeah that's it yeah that was a good summary all right i'm just trying to make sense of it yeah no yeah. it's really really crazy and complex and also at the heart of nietzsche's one of the architects of the world we're living in right now you know mm. so this concept of resentment is really Deeply, uh, deeply felt there. And so anyways, I want to just point to two things that Shaler says about resentment, and then we'll go back to grace, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. All right. So he says, uh, so he's describing in a phenomenological way. Um, this is so funny, because if Father Greg was listening to this, he'd be like, Joyce Meyer's been saying this, guys, you know. But, but it, it, it is, I don't know, whatever, for whatever reason, this, this struck me. He says, resentment is the repeated experiencing and reliving of a particular emotional response reaction against someone else. Okay? So if I'm living in resentment, so go back a year ago, I'm living in resentment with this guy, I'm repeating an experience and reliving a a particular emotional response that's not actually happening right now in front of me. Mm. It's just, I just keep reliving it, reliving it, reliving it. The continual reliving of the emotion sinks it more deeply into the center of the personality, but concomitantly removes it from the person's zone of action and expression. So the deeper that a resentment goes, according to Mach Shaler, the more it becomes centered in the personality, mm-hmm. but the more we're, it's removed from our action. So it becomes more part of us, but we can't control it. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's the crazy thing about resentment. It's not a mere intellectual, intellectual recollection of the emotion, or and of the events to which it is responding, but it's a re-experiencing of the emotion itself, a renewal of the original feeling. Hmm. So to f- to live in resentment is so destructive because it gets deeper and deeper into the human heart and becomes more attached and identified to our personality, but it gets removed from the actual field of action. Hmm. So that's why living an examined life, self-knowledge, catching these things early is helpful because it's still in the realm of yeah, it's like change. it's like your friend said something that that was um, offensive or frustrating or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and <clears throat> they said it once in reality. Right. Okay. Tomorrow they might not say it again. They might not ever say it again. But now I'm playing it over. Right. And over right. in my mind. Now they're saying it ten times. Right. Now they're saying it a hundred times. Now they've said it a thousand times. Right. And it's just going deeper and deeper every time. That's it. That's it. And then you start to, you keep that, you keep that, I have like a walk boy in my mind right now. You remember those things? Like this little, oh, it's yeah. playing, it's just, it's just playing and playing and playing and playing and playing. And you're with people, you're with the person you resent and it's just playing in your mind. Yeah. And they're not doing that. They're right not now. doing it. Yeah. And they might not even think that, but you've locked that thing in and it's become part of you. Uh. Ooh. So anyways, one last thing on this and then I promise we'll end on a positive, encouraging note here. <laughs> so, Resentment is a poisoning of the mind, according to Shaler, which has uh, quite definite causes and consequences. It's a lasting mental attitude caused by the systemic repression of certain emotions and, and affects which, as such, 
are natural components of human nature. So this is part, it gets worked into the natural fabric of, of human life. It's connected to repression, which leads to a constant tendency to, to indulge. So uh, resentment always involves repression. I can't control it. So, so people who have power and just exercise power all the time in, the, in a Machiavellian way or whatever, they don't have resentment. It's the powerless people who mm -hmm. repress it, can't, can't do anything. So if you have power over somebody, you're not, or you're kind of this, in this situation, it's not going to happen. But if you can't control something, then mm -hmm. it's going to get repressed. And he says, the emotions and the affects primarily concerned are revenge, hatred, malice, envy, and the impulse to detract and spite. So it gets well, to... I think, I mean, what ma it makes me think of like the, the reason why I would play this stuff over in my head is usually because I say, oh, if this happens again, I can figure out a way to respond. Right. I can control it next time. Right. Whatever. You know, and it, it doesn't necessarily lead anywhere, uh, but it gives me the impression that I have more control if I can figure out how to respond next time. No, and that's kind of a subtle way of plotting revenge. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that guy next time. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I got win. it in my mind. I'm gonna win. I'm gonna do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's that's kind of the crazy thing. I have a funny antidote around this um, because this is kind of heavy intellectual stuff here. But um, I was lifting couple days ago not very much weight father chris loves like you're gone it's all gone the muscles all gone but i was not very inspired triceps triceps are weak oh uh but i i was like uh, i need to get inspired to lift hard today lebsock make him proud so i was like well what did i used to listen to to get jacked in the weight room rage against the machine so i was like i'm gonna yes. listen to some rage against the machine and i did for about a half hour and by the end of it i was like I am really disturbed right now because <laughs> these guys are really angry and it's just crazy the level of resentment oh, that yeah. is worked into that band, which I used to listen to all the time when I was in high school. And I I was really affected by it. Uh, like it, it because it was like it was stirring me up, you know. Mm. And again, not to say you gotta get after it in the weight room and you gotta you listen to some good stuff, but um but I, I was just so affected by the uh like listening to these guys just scream about how much they hated the institution and the West and yeah. I don't know, you know, American. Well, politics that's their glory. Yeah. I mean, you, when you listen to that, you feel like you can conquer. Right. You know, and that was like uh, in classic literature, the, the Greek literature in uh, the Iliad, it begins rage, Achilles. rage, Achilles. And this is the glory of right. Achilles. Right. I mean, that was a value. That was right. like a virtue for them was this one is going to dominate. Yeah, everything he yeah. does because he's so angry. Right, you know? but obviously that's not a very good way to live. Right, because you run around destroying everyone around you and everyone you love. You do, and I always, I, you know, when I act out of my resentments, I always regret it afterwards. But usually in the moment, you feel powerful. You feel mm -hmm. you feel that power. So what do we do? Well, fortunately, this thing called the resurrection happened, and let's we'll return here to close this off with our friend Lavrens, the the great father of Kristen Lavrens' daughter. The death scene, when Lovrens dies, the last thing he does is he kisses the, kisses the crucifix and he says, Exorexit ad, et adhuc sum tecum, which is a quote from Psalm 139, when I awake, I am still with thee. Mm. And then he dies. And I was so profoundly moved oh, reading yeah. that part. He's a holy guy. Because he's such a holy man. But the resurrection is the freedom from slavery and the conquest of death. And it also means freedom from slavery in our loves and our human loves and in our deaths. And sometimes it's about acknowledging the death of a love. And I had a strange grace on my retreat about sometimes you have to bury it, not bury people, but just acknowledging things have died in your heart. The mm. love has died. You bury it and you allow the resurrection to happen. And so grace is a resurrection reality and love can be resurrected in Jesus in, in Christ, but we have to we have to give it to him. Hmm. And when we do, we experience so much freedom. And we can move beyond the this this world of resentment. And Kristen Lovren's daughter experiences that. But the the book portrays the struggle to get there because mm -hmm. it's not that easy. And you have to bury the the past. I mean it has you have to bury those things that you resent. And with the resentments, that feeling of the power to uh, conquer yourself in the next in the next moment there is a sort of powerlessness in in death yeah that i 
I'm not only I'm giving them another chance. You know, there's a vulnerability, there's potential um, hurt the next next time around. Um, but it's it can be a better way. And if the Lord is there, it's um, a chance for resurrection. I like that way that you frame that. Yeah. And I think that's what Nietzsche ultimately misses is that this is uh, that God, when God takes on this powerlessness in the kenosis, everything it's it, everything changes. It's not just us reverting it out of some kind of, you know, resentment. Yeah. Everything, the whole col- the whole course of human history changes. And that's what happens when Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected. So, amen. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche was uh, convinced that there were only very, very few people who could manage to live life the way that he thought was, you know, a life well lived. Yeah. In fact, Nietzsche didn't come to a very good end. That no. is true. That is true. Yeah. So... Live in the resurrection, acknowledge your resentments, bring them to the Lord, and uh, read Chris and Lavern's daughter. Nice. Oh, I love it. I like philosophy, so I know you do, you and you like literature. So, oh yeah, um, I'm reading everything Father Mike has read years ago, and I'm finally getting to it. So, okay, I'm running out of time though. This is we're getting Let's late. So, shout outs, ready? Shout-outs. All right, Spencer Leffler, this is the last time I'm shouting out your friends. All right, Spencer, this is the last time. Can you give a shout out favor? Haley, oh, he even spelled it out for me. Haley Wiengend. Haley Wiengend and Luke Luke Miller, recently engaged, super devout listeners to the podcast. Could you please give them a shout out? Yes, we do. You've got so, it. Haley, Haley and, and Luke. Luke. Congratulations Luke, on your engagement. Good name. Good name. Uh, Evangelist. Focus missionaries. And uh, grateful that they're listening. And then the last one I have, the second one and last one here is Paul Palumbo. Oh, Paul yeah, Shane. that's an easy one. Come this on, This is Paul. a fantastic email from Paul. He said, I mostly wanted to jump into the ongoing debate about the length of your podcasts. He says, I'm really, capital really, into podcasts lately, and yours is the shortest of all, right? You guys are interesting, and as long as the podcast is interesting, then the longer the better. He said, Dan Carlin hardcore history episodes sometimes go five hours. (laughs) He says, hashtag goals. Yeah. Thank you for doing them. I get a lot out of them. Paul, thanks for listening. You're one of our favorite guys on the universe. How do you even stay awake for that long? A lot of push-ups, probably. Paul Palumbo one time just snapped his shoulder, which was dislocated, right back into place and just kept on walking with me. I was like, That was crazy. Are you human? I know. He's the man. Pablo, you are real. Yep, so that's it. You got any? That was it. That was Pablo. Oh, that was yours. Okay. I guess I don't have any, so... All right, that, that's good. We're, we're running out of time here. So when we, we may have uh, one more time to podcast, but we're going home soon. So we'll be back stateside. And in the summer, we're going to mix it up with the boys. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll oh, it's great. It's, uh, we're winding down on this side. Winding down. Feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty you good. You know, closing up shop and then heading back to Denver. Heading back to Denver. So thanks for your emails and for listening. Facebook, uh, Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you soon. Ciao. God bless. Mm-hmm.